Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, the podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal which explores tourism and tourism-related areas of recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. Welcome to the Tourism Geographies podcasts. Uh, in this episode, I am fortunate to be uh, joined by uh, Dr. Carter Hunt. He's currently at the Recreation, Park and Tourism Management and Anthropology Department at Penn State uh, in the US in Pennsylvania. And he recently published his an article in Tourism Geographies entitled Narco Tourism, a Conceptual Framework and Research Agenda. Welcome, Carter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We're, we're interested in, in the research that you've done and we think that readers and, and listeners will also be. So very fascinating uh, topic, I think. It really stands out, uh, narco-tourism. So first question, what was the problem that the research or the paper was trying to understand? Well, just briefly, I mentioned a little more about my background. I, I was trained as a bit more of an environmental anthropologist. And so I've always been interested in the influence of tourism on communities around areas of high biodiversity, parks and protected areas. And that's led me to a lot of contexts in Latin America, especially in coastal areas. So I've done some work in, in Nicaragua, Costa Rica, Ecuador, Peru, and also in Colombia. In a lot of those contexts, whether I was focusing on this topic or not, uh, the topics of drugs and drug trafficking would often materialize. And so um, even when it wasn't a specific focus or something I was writing about, I was hearing a lot of information through my ethnographic research in those sites about the influence of trafficking, about the use of tourism-related businesses to launder narco money, about um, narco-trafical control of supply chains related to tourism in those areas. And so it was always on the on sort of the side burner as a topic of interest, uh, something I was frequently hearing about. Um, and eventually, after working in Colombia for a bit and a place a little bit more associated with you, what you might call narco heritage. Um, I began to think about these ideas a little more, more explicitly and even doing a little bit of reading about um, who's been talking about this and what's been said about it. What I quickly realized was um, a lot of the writings about things to do with narco trafficking in the tourism context, we're focusing almost specifically on, almost exclusively on, on consumption of drugs during tourism related travel. In the meantime, I was getting exposed to writings from outside the discipline about things like narco deforestation, uh, the creation of clandestine airstrips and how that could be a driver of deforestation in certain areas where narco trafficking is quite common. I was hearing a lot about uh, narco heritage through other anthropological writings that I was associated with, especially in the Colombian context, but also in areas of Mexico. Um, of course, we see the narco glamorization taking place across movies and television shows and Programs like Narcos in particular are getting a lot of attention. So a lot of those ideas were just kind of stewing in my mind when I thought I would, I would sit down and, and write this up a little bit more. Another thing I noticed is that in this particular project I was involved with in Colombia, which, which was not focused on this as a topic at all, it was focused much more on the impacts of coral reef damage on fishing and tourism dependent communities in some of the islands off the coast of Cartagena there. I was getting familiar with sites that had been developed uh, by narco traffickers themselves. They had created some of the earliest forms of tourism to some of these off coast islands. And some of those residents in those areas tended to those businesses 
um, and had really interesting recollections of their experiences you know, catering to the needs of those narco traffickers. And oftentimes it was very positive recollections because it brought a kind of an economic boom to those islands at a time when they were otherwise pretty socioeconomically depressed. And I also learned that many of those facilities, these elaborate homes that the narco traffickers themselves built down there are now things that can be rented on Airbnb. And you could see a form of tourism where people would visit those islands and kind of temporarily adopt or emulate the lifestyle that a narco trafficker might have had when they were there, you know, what they've seen represented in movies and films and television shows. So I started to try to make sense of all these different influences and, and ways of thinking about narco tourism. I realized it wasn't just one way. It wasn't just about consumption. It was also about visiting places where uh, narcotics and other forms of drugs are produced. It was about traveling to acquire narcotics or drugs. It was about the heritage in those places being represented and reified through forms of tourism there. It was about the travel and tourism that the narco traffickers themselves engaged in that became the foothold for tourism in some of these islands. And then it became the waves of people that came behind them to sort of emulate temporarily at least the lifestyle of those narco traffickers. So that's some of the ideas and thinking that went into this, this typology that I presented in the paper. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I, I saw on, uh, on YouTube, of course, Pablo Escobar's house and or former house and, and how tourists were going there to you know, take photos, take selfies. It's uh, an amusement park. It's yeah. essentially an amusement park or, and or a museum. And uh, Pablo Escobar's brother offers walking tours in Medellin to provide people with, you know, a glimpse into the, the narco lifestyle, the narco, the narco viewpoint, as they call it. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, it touches, I mean, your, your background's anthropology and, it, you know, it touches, it touches authenticity. It touches, uh, you know, the other, of course, uh, almost fantasy type living vicariously. Uh, imagining themselves in, in situ and uh, what, it, what it was really like, albeit in a sort of a safer tourism bubble than, you know, if it was still operating as a, as a cartel. So, yeah, there's lots of, uh, as you touched on, there are lots of interesting uh, points to uh, explore. So, you know, reading the, you know, reading the abstract, you identified six different tourism-related activities of yes. narco uh, tourism. So you can just touch on uh, briefly each of those and, and sure. how how they are conceptualized or, or defined? Well, you know, I start off in, in the paper mentioning this idea of narco-tourism. It had been defined uh, by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. There was a working definition out there that we took a look at and then elaborated a little bit. And the first point I wanted to make is, you know, narcotics are a specific category of drugs. So this term is used by the UN and it's used by me in the paper a little bit more broadly. It includes things that wouldn't be formally considered narcotic, you know, poppy-based drugs. Uh, but it could also include things sourced from other products uh, like cocaine, like marijuana. Uh, so those are categories of illicit drugs is what we're referring to, things that are considered illegal in a given context. And that's what falls under the umbrella as, as we define it in this paper, as I define it. And then those six categories were, first of all, consumption-oriented narco-tourism. And this is where tourism scholars have dedicated a good bit of attention in the past. There's quite a bit of writing about different destinations and the types of drug consumption that takes place in those places. So that wasn't necessarily the novel contribution here but it was important to acknowledge those contributions of other writers to begin with. A second category would be, you know, tourism related to visiting sites of production of drugs. Uh, this could include cannabis farms. It could include clandestine cocaine laboratories in rural Colombia. Um, so that was a second category, visiting to see how drugs are elaborated and or produced. And that's often usually on the basis of a cultivation of a of kind of a, a primary product that they're derived from. 
Uh, third category I referred to as acquisition-oriented narcotourism, traveling to acquire drugs, traveling from areas where it's legal to areas where, or where it's not, where it's, from where it's illegal to areas where it's legal to acquire things. That could also overlap with consumption and or production-based, but sometimes there's simply trafficking of drugs back and forth. And if that involves overnight stays, you know, that ticks the boxes for qualifying as tourism in some ways. Yeah. And so, uh, one, one example I, I see in the paper, you talk about the Cuban cigars, you know, Americans yeah. Yeah, going down there for interesting time. Well, that's, that's, that's an example of a non-drug related form of uh, you know, acquisition oriented travel. Um, and we know that even within the US as different states rules and regulations change, people are traveling back and forth between states to acquire things that are still considered illicit in their home context. Um, and then we get into these other categories, things that draw upon kind of the narco heritage of different areas. I call this fourth category, dark heritage narco tourism. That would be visiting places where specific drug trafficking activities occurred, especially drug related bloodshed and violence, places where Pablo Escobar was gunned down or sites that are popular visitation sites in Medellin, places where cartel related bombings took place. This is where I said Escobar's brother might provide walking tours to provide the narco viewpoint of that. We've also heard stories of policemen that would have been tasked with uh, confronting narco-trafficking heritage and nar narco-trafficking activities in those areas, providing walking tours and talking about their perspective on those years. So that's the dark heritage narco-tourism, visiting these sites of tragedy, so forth. Then I talk about the narco-trafficker tourism, the, the traveling and the, and the tourism that the narco-traffickers engaged in themselves. And like I said, this, this might not be a really big, um, you know, form of tourism in terms of absolute numbers, but it is really, really critical. It has a strong history in certain places, and especially these Islas de Rosario outside of Cartagena that I referred to. They're largely within national park boundaries nowadays, but the first and earliest forms of tourism that would have appeared there in the 70s would have been narco-traffickers building kind of second homes and vacation homes for themselves on these islands. And that became the, the first foothold, the first forms of tourism that existed in those places. So those residents nowadays, that in some cases have gone on to build their own businesses, um, you know, got their start tending to those narco-traffickers down there. And, and there's many homes there that can be rented on Airbnb that were of well-known narco-traffickers and are sometimes even promoted on the basis of having previously belonged uh, to narco-traffickers. Um, so that's the, the, the fifth category, the, the tourism that the, the narco-traffickers themselves engaged in. And finally, this last category, which is something else that's observable in that area and potentially in other areas as well, is the people attempting to emulate temporarily that narco-trafficker lifestyle by renting speedboats, heading out to these islands, renting those homes on Airbnb, and you know, adopting a, a, a truly and, and very intensely hedonistic lifestyle for a few years that really tries to emulate or romanticize or glamorize the sort of lifestyle of the narco-traffickers as is, as is reinforced through what they're seeing in, you know, in narcos and TVs and the movies in some cases. It's worth acknowledging that you know, some of these places in Colombia are capitalizing on that demand and on that interest from international travelers. Um, I knew this was a phenomenon when I was in my doctor's office having some, some basic uh, you know, health issues checked out. And I learned that he recently had traveled with friends on some form of bachelor party trip to Colombia and they visited Pablo Escobar's property, the one that you mentioned. Um, so it's, it's becoming kind of pervasive. There is a relatively large demand for some of these types of activities. Um, but there's gonna be, so there's areas that are gonna capitalize on it, that demand. There's other areas that are trying to shirk, they're trying to jettison that image. I know Medellin is trying to rebrand itself as a city of eternal spring. And uh, rather than capitalize on that demand and on that image, they're really trying to overwrite it with other types of images and, and rebrand themselves in other ways. So 
it could be a challenge or an opportunity in the different destinations. I mean, it touches on destination image too, doesn't it? I mean, it's interesting that once a destination gets known for type of tourism, that it can be difficult to yeah to shake. So right. if you, I mean, you're probably aware of Colombia's slogan that used to be it says Colombia the only risk is wanting is wanting to stay, which uh, <laughs> yeah. you know implies. Uh, it acknowledges. It acknowledges the yeah. risk. Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledges that, yeah. Leans into it, you might say. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So yeah, you came up designed this conceptual framework, which is, goes well beyond uh, just the consumption of, of narcotics. And then in the paper, you sketched out uh, you know these six uh, different forms of tourism-related activities. You uh, you know you propose a, a research agenda. So sure. what what can other scholars where can other scholars build on on your work? Right. Well, you know, this uh, one thing I was I'll be curious to hear is if other scholars who have not written about this as a topic, much like myself in the past, are not also hearing stories like this in the sites they're working in. They're hearing about it, and even though it hasn't been the focus of their writing in the past, there may be a lot more knowledge out there amongst the tourism scholars than we've seen make its way into print. So what I tried to do is acknowledge. Uh, some of the ways we might see these dynamics playing out in different places. People might be hearing rumors about how narco-related capital is being used to finance tourism developments in certain locations, how those tourism developments might be serving as, as uh, shell companies or opportunities to launder money. There could be opportunities for, for scholars to expand on those issues in different contexts. Um, also, you know, the consumption-oriented narco-tourism, as things become more legal in other places, we might see that give way what would be considered more mainstream forms of culinary or gastronomy tourism. Um, or the production-oriented tourism could morph into more mainstream forms of agritourism, where it's no longer illicit. You're simply visiting the sites of cultivation of now legal products. So I think there's ways that this thinking can link tightly with some of those other existing mainstream forms of tourism. Uh, that is, as long as the drugs use and trafficking remains illicit in those contexts, um, it's still a little bit distinct, but could come together over time. Uh, we can even see the consumption of, of different types of drugs, uh, narcotics, including marijuana and hallucinogens, increasingly being recognized for therapeutic value. So we could see those start to merge with medical or healthcare tourism, even wellness travel in some contexts. And while it's illegal, while it remains illicit, sometimes it can be overlapping with those forms of tourism in different destinations. And of course, anywhere where, there, where there's heritage of narco-trafficking, we're likely to see some form of this exists, some form of interpretation related to that heritage, some form of interest among visitors and, and key, uh, key locations, perhaps incidents where well-known trafficking events could have occurred, like, again, the massacres and so forth, bombings, things of that nature. And lastly, I mentioned, you know, um, we might see new locations begin to get associated with this. And we're already seeing a little bit of that in the United States with the really um, the really bad sort of opioid crisis that we're dealing with, you know, that, that has a geographic component to it. That's, that's, that's um, generally thought of as and associated with particular regions of the country. So there may, be, there may be something along those lines as well. Maybe that would come in the form of, of service travel or uh, volunteer travel to support people in those areas. Yeah, I mean, it can also be both an attraction and a deterrent, right? If, uh, depending on- Absolutely. On, you know, maybe if you're more family orientated or worried about ethics or you know visiting places like I don't know Jamaica that has a reputation again for uh, you know for marijuana and, and use you know maybe uh, obviously attractive to some people and and a deterrent to, to others so 
and that's and almost like a, a segmentation or, or filtering mechanism. Yeah. And that can change, right? So as you mentioned, Absolutely. you know, as states or US states are relaxing or tightening their, their laws, and, um, my understanding is, you know, Colorado was was quite an early adopter sure. of decriminalizing de marijuana use. Of I was just there in the recent days. The American Association, American Association of Geographers meeting was there. Um, so I, I missed some of our AAG colleagues there, but I did, I did see a few others there that would be affiliated with uh, tourism geographies. Nice. Um, and even at that conference for us, you know, academic travelers, there was add-on experiences to visit dispensaries and things in that area. So they're, they're clearly capitalizing on that as well as uh, to add uh, interest in their in, in that destination. Yeah, and then as other states, if they choose to go the same way as Colorado, then of course Colorado doesn't become as a, a, attractive, at least for at least for narco narco tourism. So there's it's fluid, you know, it's dynamic, I, I guess, uh, from a geographical or geography uh, perspective. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, Kata, okay. Was there anything else you would like to add? You think that we've uh, that we haven't covered that you'd like to uh, mention? Well, like I said, I, I just uh, encourage other scholars to give, give a little thought and, and to share the ways that they've hear, heard these issues uh, influencing the sites and the people and the residents in the places where they work. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to be said about this than I was able to articulate here. I'd like to acknowledge you know, a few authors in there um, that I, I cited quite heavily. I cited some Colombian scholars. Um, Carlos Duran showed me a lot of content related to the Isas de Rosario. Um, NAIF has done a lot of writing on narco-romantization and narco-glamorization outside the context of tourism, but uh, I drew heavily on those ideas as well. And, and yeah, I just look forward to seeing uh, how, this, how this materializes in the scholarship in the future. Um, Great. Well, uh, thanks, Carter. Just as a reminder, Dr. Carter Hunt is an Associate Professor of Recreation, Park and Tourism Management and Anthropology at Penn State uh, University. Uh, he's an environmental anthropologist whose research centers on the social science of nature-based tourism, biodiversity conservation, and sustainable community development in and around protected areas in Latin America and Tanzania. And uh, we were discussing his recently published paper in Tourism Geographies titled Narco Tourism, Conceptual Framework and Research Agenda. Carter, thanks for speaking with us. And uh, listeners and, and readers, uh, please reach out uh, for collaborations with Carter if you're interested in this uh, topic. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Thanks, Carter.